out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Of course we are. Hello and welcome to the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. I'm with you for the next 60 minutes in that ballpark, okay? And as I often say at this point, playing the finest in indie pop from that golden decade that was the 80s. But we also love a special guest. God, do we love a special guest. Um, This week is going to be the turn of Sarah Jane Morris, the singer who'd worked with or been in the band or several. In fact, loads of bands, including The Republic and also The Happy End, went on to work with the Communards and sung on that chart band sound or song called Don't Need Me This Way. Who can forget that? Anyway, she's gone on to work with lots of other people, huge solo career, and last year brought out an album titled Sweet Little Mystery, which was the, um, yes, singing the songs of John Martin. Anyway, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, as you do, in the world of showbiz, we got on to those important points, the early years, and this was Jane's response. Jane, it's over to you. My teens were my 70s, because I'm... I'm, um... I was born at the very end of the 50s, 59. So my teen years were the 70s where, you know, I mean, Sweet was very much part of that too, you know, because they were very much a 70s band. Um, But um, everything from Hendrix to Joplin to Captain Beefheart to Stevie Wonder to Dylan to all of the Motown stuff, all of the Atlantic record stuff, Northern Soul. I was a Northern Soul girl. Right. And I used to tell my mum that I was going to stay with Lorraine Shuka of a weekend, and she'd say the same, and we'd be on a, on a, on a coach up to the Wigan, to Wigan Casino. Blimey. Dance all night. And, um, in fact, I've just written a song called Northern Soul Girl. Oh, nice. Recounting, recounting all of that. Um, and, and you were born, were you brought up in Southampton? No, no, I was born there because, but all of my brothers, except for one, was born, were born there. It was the nearest nursing home that uh, practised natural childbirth. And my mum used to save up her coupons and she very much believed in natural childbirth. And so we all ended up being born in the same nursing home through her saving up her coupons. Wow. No, I've, I've only ever been to Southampton once since then to do a concert. It's not a place I know at all. No. But, yes, it's there on my birth certificate. Southampton. So were you brought up in...? I was brought up all over. I've, I've lived in this last move that I've just done. is my 37th move. Wow. Yeah. But I've lived all over the country. God, that is impressive because during my kind of that that sort of leaving home, student days, unemployment period, you know, sort of, I just remember every 18 months we were sort of putting things in boxes and moving out again and trying to squeeze it all into a Ford Fiesta 1.1. Yeah, and then moving once again. Well, my my childhood was, you know, before I even left home, we must have moved nearly 20 times, you know. I came from a big family. I've got six brothers and uh, had a dad who... um, Either never paid the bills or the rent or whatever it was. And so we were often moving in the middle of the night and often several times a year. Wow. So we went to loads of different schools too because 
whenever we moved, we had to then start a new school. So yes. It just became part of, you know, what I knew as life. So it really, but it really did prepare me for the life of a musician where you're on the road and yes. every hotel room you have to make your home for the, the time you're there. So when did you ever see a film which was um, with Rita Tushinam in called A Taste of Honey? Did you ever see? Oh, yeah. Did yeah. you ever, so when you watched that, did you kind of slightly feel, oh, that's, there's, there's aspects of my life in there? Aspects, with... aspects, they're, they're, and, and also a mixture of other aspects. From another film, which was just like a real family favourite, The Railway Children. Oh, God, yes. Because uh, when I was 17, my dad went to prison. And so we were all homeless and absolutely believing in his innocence. And it just totally, you know, sort of it drove a train through the family. You know? And uh, so I always associated with that film as well. Wow, that is quite the story, isn't it? I mean, yeah. my God, that is quite the childhood. I mean... Did you, I mean, and during this period, I mean, what were you able to sort of kind of have a stability in your life in terms of, you know, music or, you know, well, sometimes... music, music had already, you know, it had already started to become a huge part of my, my life. It was, you know, I listened a great deal to music. I wasn't, I never studied music, so it wasn't something that I thought of as a career, but it was hugely important to me. Yes, and, and when when um, Dad went to prison, I found myself uh, leaving halfway through sick form. You know, having a bit of a breakdown, I suppose, really, because you you don't know what's happening to your life. You've lost your home, and you know your your mum's desperately trying to stop the social services taking all the rest of the children away. You know, it wasn't easy. Definitely wasn't easy. And then um, I happened to go into the local tech uh, to enrol to see what course I could do. And I just happened to bump into this guy who ended up by being like a father figure to me. And he was the leading authority on Bertolt Brecht in the country. And he had set up the first theatre and education course in the country. So uh, he must I must have looked like a, a very lost young thing. And he took me aside and asked me all about myself. And, and then by the end of our conversation, he said, I really think you should be coming to my course, uh, you, what you're suffering from is alienation. And that's what Brecht is all about. And I'll look after you. And so without any kind of history or really desire, I, I ended up by doing this, this drama course uh, at the Stratford, what was it called? St was Drama and Liberal Arts. And I was there with Ben Elton. Ben Elton was the year above me. I was in his first ever play. But what it did was, um, I, through through socialism, which is what I was introduced to through this course, as he was the leading authority on Brecht, you can imagine, that's what we were sort of leaning towards. And it, and it just got me thinking and challenging. And uh, it was the best education I could have had. And, and uh, I also found myself joining Amnesty International. And because I realised that people all over the world were being imprisoned for things that they hadn't done and for their beliefs. And, and, and so I felt I had something in common with these, these people. And so I, that was, I suppose, that was the first organisation I joined of my own back. But leading on from that uh, drama college, I, I then found out that I was, I was an OK actress, but I got into the Central School of Speech and Drama. 
And so I moved up to London. And because I've got a dad in prison and we were almost homeless at that point, of course I got the full grants and uh, um, moved to London. But it, my, my introduction to socialism was at that point. And, and, and straight after drama school, I joined this band called The Happy End, which was a 25-piece Brechtian big band. And they made socialists, they, they made politics swing. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we worked with Robert Wyatt and Ro Billy Bragg did one of his first ever concerts supporting us. And um, so the Brecht carried on all the way through. And in fact, I'm still in contact with that wonderful teacher, Gordon Valens, who I remember Ben Elton, Ben Elton did a, did a BT ad. Um, lots of people were asked to to name check someone that had made a difference and he name checked Gordon Valens. Wow. And, and Richard Coles from the Communards was also there. He was a few years after me. He was there with my brother. And that's how I met Richard because he was my brother Rod's friend. But um, this guy, Gordon Valens, he's in his 90s and he's still in contact with me and he still comes to any concert I do in the Midlands at the Warwick Arts Centre and he's still very vital incredible man so i think he made a difference to lots of people wow well he, he probably kind of saved your life then i think he, he 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 was he was a surrogate dad but he was someone yeah he 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 wrote i remember he he did a piece in the guardian education supplement years later and it, it was a piece about were there any regrets and he did this piece about saying that he always knew I was talented, but he didn't feel that he really helped me achieve that. And he regretted not um, doing more for me. And that's interesting that he name-checked me in this piece. Uh, years, yeah, what was bizarre was years later, I remember I'd had, had a baby and I was living back in Warwickshire. And I was asked by um, uh, Improbable Theatre we were doing a, a, they were going around the country touring. It's fantastic mine company and, and, and sort of a performance theatre company. And they were picking up sort of famous people in different communities and asking them if they would take part in their show. And they, as a company, would reenact the life of, of this person that they'd chosen. And my dad had just died and I'd uh, I'd fallen over and damaged my legs so I was on crutches and I'd said yes to this because someone had been at drama school with me was an improbable so I went along and they they became my brothers and my family and I was supposedly directing them this is all just sort of improvised directing on the stage and um, and then they took me through which was very cathartic they took they allowed me to to reenact with them the scattering of my dad's ashes, which we'd done the week before. And it was just the most bizarre thing. And then I came off stage and in the, uh, I remember in the, uh, the bar afterwards, Gordon Valens turned up and he said, Sarah Jane, I had forgotten how barking mad your father was. And it all came back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, God. So did your, during that period, did your dad get out of prison before dying or did he? Yes, it? he did. He did. But when he, 
because the judge he he sacked his QC, and the judge was so furious with him, he refused to ha let him have bail. So for the whole of the time of his case, which went on for a long time, um, he was locked locked away in Winston Green. So he spent 23 hours of a 24-hour day uh, locked away, and his for good behaviour, he was allowed to serve the Birmingham Six tea. Right. So he got to know them. Yes. And, um, what I tell you another bizarre coincidence. I was. Um, this is what about 10, 11 years ago. I was out in um, Colombia doing the Hay Literary Festival. And I was out there with Dominic Miller, Sting's guitarist, because at that time we were doing a lot of work together. And uh, and on the bill, you had Salman Rushdie and uh, quite a lot of wonderful authors. And there was also Benjamin Zephaniah there. Now, I'd done it, all, all the early sort of cast new variety concerts when I was in The Happy End and The Republic. I'd done them alongside Benjamin. So I knew him quite well. And one of the songs on this album that I was promoting out in Colombia, uh, I'd written about my dad, the Birmingham Six, the Guildford Four and Kenny Ritchie. It was called Never Forget How to Dance. So I did this introduction about it and um, sung the song. And after the concert, Benjamin Zephaniah came up to me and he said, do you know what? I think I was at Winston Green at the same time as your dad. I knew him. Oh, wow. so how weird is that? Yes, I would have. I would have had to sit down and have a. Yeah, wow, that was. <laughs> God, that's such but a. That, um, but anyway, he, he he for that first year he was in top security prison, and then, and then obviously once his case uh, was over, he was moved to an open prison. He went to Oakham, open prison. But we didn't have a car, so trying to visit him was a a bit of a nightmare. And my mum at this point had a young, very young child because she'd had a child 10 years after the last one, last the, the fifth child. So um, I was about, I was the only one that could really go and visit him. So I'd have to catch uh, a bus to Leamington Spa then a train from um, Leamington to Birmingham and then another one to Leicester and then, another, then the prison bus. And, you know, it would take most of the day. Yes, my God. Him. There you go. And did you, before he died, did you were you able to sort of reconnect with him and sort of? Have oh some... yeah. I mean, when he came, I because I'm the only girl out of six boys, I and I'm a redhead and he was a redhead. We did we had a, an incredible bonding. Um, I did think he was God until he went to prison, and and so that was a bit of a come down, realizing that he was you know just as 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 fragile as any other human being. And and wasn't always correct and right, um, but we we formed a friendship. Once I kind of accepted the fact that he he would make a great friend, not necessarily a great dad or a great partner. He, I don't think he was brilliant at being a, a husband, but he made a very interesting friend. And the conversations that we would have were incredible. He had a brilliant brain, and he had a great education, and. Um, we had a wonderful language together, um, but he, uh, in the last, literally, he died, he died very young. He was only, well, young, youngish. He was 73. And uh, he dreamed, he remarried and had another child. But he, 
because he lost quite a lot of time because of prison, he kind of claimed that back. And uh, so he, he knocked years off his age. And uh, he felt that was his right because he'd lost his time. And, uh, but on the day that he died in the hospice, his uh, legal aid came through so that he could fight his case and prove his innocence. Yeah. I thought that was tragic that it had taken that long and it came on the day that he died. Blimey. And we, we had the choice of did we, did we pick all of this up and fight it as a family? on his behalf and we decided no we burnt the lot we burnt it and thought it had already taken up too much of our lives yes uh, we would let it all go and and just on that point was was it the case that he was innocent he was innocent of certain things and guilty of others yes fair enough <laughs> well god that's that's quite a lot, lot to i mean take. in his case in his court case they called him walter mitty and he was he was a walter mitty character he believed what he wanted to believe right a bit like lance armstrong as well isn't he sort of yes. has those kind of really yes some sort of some things they just people don't often well can't see i suppose they can't quite put the torch on or the light on because it would just be too yeah. much but they, much, seem exactly. so, they seem so. They seem so innocent. Yes, this is true. So as we trucked through, and this is um, going back though into the eighties. I mean, at the beginning yeah. of the eighties, there was kind of a huge amount of unemployment, and there'd been the Falkland crisis, and then you know, obviously, the whole miners' strike stuff. So it was very, you know, like I remember how divided everything was. Unlike now, it's <laughs> dumb, crikey. Um, so yes, the eighties, but there was a lot of unemployment. So how were you navigating during that period? Because you, you. You already had been in several bands by then, hadn't you? Well, in the early 80s, I was in, like I said, I was in the, the Republic, which was a fantastic African-Caribbean Latin band. And they were, they, it was before you, one used the term world music. And we were signed to Oval Records, Charlie Gillett's label. Oh, and yes. our first single was called Don't Believe It's In Your Interest. It was anti the Malvinas War. So that was my first single. And of course, it was... Uh, banned by Radio One, and uh, and the Capital Radio had just set up, and and it was very different to how it is now, but um, it they were able to take the chance on things, and so they played it, and then a few years later, after the Republic, we were the band that were going to make it. We were the cover of NME. Um, we had a documentary made about us, but we were, we were too political. Yeah. Uh, one of our songs was called The Royal Family. Uh, we we were deemed too political and we didn't quite, we just didn't quite make it, but it was such a talent within that band. And, and we split up and the band became the happy end and half the band became the Three Mustafas Three. Oh, yes. John Peel yes. loved that band, didn't yeah. he? Yes, he did. God, he, he, did. he loved it. There was a lot of kind of those big... Kind of, is it called high life bands around at the eighties? Yeah, yes, a lot of high life. Yes, well, we had, we had, uh, we, we did a lot of high life within the Republic. We were very multicultural. Yes, we came from all over the world, and with the happy end, um, with Kay Sutcliffe, who was a Kent Miner's wife, uh, and with Matt Fox, who was the leader of the happy end, we took, uh, we took and recorded her 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 lyrics uh, and. The song was Cold Not Dull, which became the anthem for the minor strike. Amazing. Yes, there was this. Because so, you must remember, though. We were very though, involved at that point. We did, we did every 
Well, we did we did hundreds of benefits the year of the miners' strike. Yes, um, we were doing a benefit the night that we found out that that all was lost. But like you were talking about, in the eighties, one knew the enemy. It was Thatcher. Yes, you know, Thatcher's government, and 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 now the the time is so strange because there are so many enemies. It's it's really not clear. It's really not clear. <laughs> but there was clarity then, and as a result, we were able to fight and create and uh, I mean everything that was happening on the fringe within film theater music art literature it was all a fight back yeah it does it, it it was quite interesting I remember all the sort of we had you know Cinema City had all the art films that you know everyone just went to see but it was it was relatively straightforward and also the other thing that I've realized looking back at this period was that you had those gatekeepers and so then you know you'd go to John Peel and some people went to the enemy or Melody Maker and Record Mirror probably not sound so much but there was definitely you know it was quite easy to go oh yeah they're my tribe and there's a bit of a subsection within that tribe and that's the mainstream that's Steve Wright and Simon Bates and Radio One and you know yeah. so it was very you know you you could quickly not fit in but you kind of knew where to go quite quickly didn't you in those yes. days yeah yeah and that yeah. was and then you know obviously we had those massive kind of the you know the Falkland the miners strike and then you know it kind of we went into we had the Alton Bill. We had Clause Twenty Eight. We had um, uh, the poll tax. Poll tax. You know, there was lots. There was lots to demonstrate against and fight against. We had. You know, the, uh, I was with with the happy end. We were every Saturday. We were outside South Africa House with a megaphone singing Sikalele Africa," and uh, my one of my first boyfriends was um, a guy called. Um, Dali Tambo, who was the son of Oliver Tambo, and who was Mandela's right hand man, and so I got very involved with artists against apartheid because of that. Um, so they, they were very interesting, very innovative, very creative times. Yes, and and at that time there was also those there were certain record labels, and you were on with the Happy End on Cooking Vinyl, which I believe yeah. was start. It was vaguely started with Michelle Shot. Album. That's right. That's right. Michelle, she used to do. She used to do a lot of gigs with us as well, Michelle. Yes, campfire songs or campfire yeah. album, which was a classic with crickets and cars driving past. Yeah. Yes, that was a really amazing. You know, five o'clock in Amsterdam. I seem to remember the first one of the songs on it. So there was, you know, I I do remember there was like, you know, there was S, the SWP and you know, and obviously we were all eating TVP as well. So that was good. Yes, uh, <laughs> it was great. So can and then Red Wedge came along and you were yeah. and and were you you were quite involved with that as well. Yes. Well, it was at the point that uh, I'd met I'd met Jimmy. Richard had brought him along to one of my gigs, a uh, minor strike, a uh, minor's gig. And uh, Jimmy had been very involved with the minor strike through a Gaze the Word bookshop. And uh, he came to see me and we talked about how funny it was that I was this very tall, red-headed woman with a very low voice. And he was a very petite, red-headed man with a very high voice. And we kind of joked about it. And then he said, look, I'm doing a, a benefit for Gaze the Word bookshop at the fridge in Brixton next week. Do you fancy doing it with me? Now, we didn't get any chance to rehearse because he he just signed his deal with London Records with Jimmy, with, with Richard. They just signed as the Communards. 
it just you know bit Bronski beat had, had yes. uh, was was in the past at this point and so um i i suggested that we did uh billy holiday's lover man because i thought it would be very funny in camp that we'd both be singing about the same guy and um so i sent him I can't remember how. I must have played it over the phone, possibly, and I managed to get the lyrics and printed them up. And we met at the fridge, so there was no rehearsal involved. And we were literally, you know, sort of taking the the lyrics from each other. It was so camp our rendition, and uh, and the audience went crazy because it was a it was it was perfect for that that event and and the audience. And London Records was was in the audience, and so suddenly from that. Uh, duet I was being asked next day if I'd go to America to record the album with him because of course the record company had seen its uh, its possibilities because of how odd Jimmy and I looked together and uh, how camp we could be together and the difference in our voices yes well absolutely and so suddenly I was off to America with him having having never been a, I'd, I'd been to I think I'd been on uh, the ferry and the train to Paris once, but I'd never been abroad before that. And, um, <laughs> I seem so to remember. I, I seem to remember getting a passport was quite different in those days. You just went to a post office and said, "Can I have one for a year?" And it was like, "Give us five pounds." Absolutely, pound. and that's all I'd had before was a one-year passport <laughs> <laughs> with some dodgy picture taken in a booth for a sort of fifty yeah. p, which yeah. was quite which was quite strange actually yes because I'd sort of realized when you were meant because the other band it was you know people like Michelle Shocked and Tracy Chapman came along but there was also um Bronsky Beat was such a radical outfit at the time you know it music- really was, and what was what was amazing about Jimmy was he 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 was writing the soundtrack to so many young gay you know, teenagers who hadn't, who didn't know where to go with it. Yes. And, and he was writing their soundtrack. I think it was incredibly important for Bronsky Beat. And um, I think he's, he's, he's been a, he's been a real torch carrier. Uh, he was one, he, and, and he dared to be out, whereas a lot of people at that point were not out. And what is interesting is, is when I then signed my, first solo album after the the communards I, I stayed for a year and then i i was offered a major deal and who wouldn't take that so i i wasn't a songwriter at that point i became a songwriter years a few years later but I, d- I did write a few of the tracks on my album but i wasn't a good songwriter and so i covered the song that i used to sing to my youngest brother who was 14 years younger than me when he went to bed because it was in the 70s and uh, it was me and mrs jones and I, I recorded it in Minneapolis with a lot of Prince's band. And um, I put, it was on my first album. And Radio One banned it because it might have been a lesbian song because I hadn't changed it to me and Mr. Jones. Now, that just shows how it was OK in 86 uh, to be gay. But in 89, it still wasn't OK to be lesbian. And I wasn't a lesbian. And so all doors were closed to me, including the the incredible support that you'd have expected from the gay press, having been the darling of the left wing and the gay press up until that point with everything that I'd done. 
and nobody touched it because it wasn't okay at that point because no lesbians had come out in the music business. Dusty never came out. No. Joan Under Trading didn't come out um, back then. And this was 1989 and it closed all the doors and it stopped my career in England. But luckily that song became a big hit for me in Europe and nobody asked me. You know, I was asked on Newsbeat three times, kept being asked back. And each time it was, are you a lesbian? And I felt that if I said I wasn't, it was undoing everything that we'd stood for as the communards. And if I, and if I you know, I just felt so I, I didn't answer it. And, uh, you know, it's it was very interesting how four years later, Katie Lang came out and everybody, all of those record companies contacted me and wanted to sign me, hoping I was a lesbian because suddenly it was okay to be a lesbian. And it just just goes to show how weird these time, these different stages of, of, of history are. Yes, God, because quite a lot of people have mentioned about the timing of music. Because some people timed it right, you know, not through any planning, just because they yeah, were... Yeah, no, it's uh, just all about timing. It's all about timing. And, you know, and then there was a guy called Richard Strange with the Doctors of Madness who said we were just yeah. two years too early for punk, so... By the time, you know, he's a good friend of mine, Richard. Oh, excellent! Well, and I've he sung on most of his albums. Oh, lovely! Well, he's just said, well, all the all the punks came to our gigs, and then yeah. well, and then... He, he set up Cabaret Futura, where so many people debuted their careers. Yes, but he, you know, he's got some amazing stories and sort of yes, another life at the end. Yeah, of, which is just well, amazing. He, he and I had the same. Uh, both of our managers were in the same building, so we met in '89. When, um, no, 88, beg your pardon, 87, sorry, because I met my manager on the Red Wedge tour because he was managing Madness. Okay. And, uh, and then they shared an office with Richard's manager. So I became good friends with him and Rini, his first part, long-term partner. And uh, we've remained friends all the way through. And he's brilliant. What a raconteur. Yes. Amazing man. Just everything yeah. about him is gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. He came to Norwich recently doing the, the uh, songs of Lou Reed, which was, you know, just oh, br- yes. I have yes, to yes, say, yes. and the band he had was just amazing. Quite a few, well, the guitarist had been laid with, you know, Bowie. Do you, was that Pete Jenner? Well, he's, he's, he plays with me a lot, Kevin Armstrong. Yes. Yeah, no, he lives, he lives very near me. Oh. He was in my band for about five years before he went back to Iggy Pop. Yes, my yeah. God, that's yeah. I know that's you know the caliber is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, just so many. So, what did you? I mean, as with a lot of people, I remember you know, and I have to confess, the band that I, that sort of was just so meaningful for me was the Smiths, because lyrically, like you know, the Bronski beat as well for other people. You know, the Smiths were the you know the band that I loved intensely. I mean, did it feel a bit strange? You know, because because I've you know read Morrissey's book of his kind of poverty and kind of un, un, you know unusual teen years I suppose and then suddenly was like voila you know you're, you're there on stage you, you know you know having that sort of like literally a rocket going up to being like oh well this is going to be fun playing benefit gigs and you know and all that but then suddenly like, and then suddenly you're number one all over the world yeah, yeah it's a very weird thing you know it's, a, it's what, a very weird thing and in you um you don't know who you are for quite a long long period of time you know you're you're I remember I was living in a hard to let flat in Brixton but because I'd been on telly a lot people would be following me back you know and you never knew whether they were going to mug you or whether they just wanted to know you and you know you're often on a on a tube 
and somebody would start talking to you and you think, do I know you? Or is it just because <laughs> that they, they'd seen you? You know, and I'm, I'm a friendly person, so I, I often wouldn't know what I was getting into. But, but um, it's, it's a weird thing. I chose, I watched how it changed Jimmy's life, you know, because remember Jimmy had had so much success in Bronski Beat, way ahead of the communards. So wherever we went, people either wanted to sleep with him or beat his brains out. And I, I watched that and I realised that he couldn't go anywhere because he was so recognisable. He couldn't have any privacy. And, and I remember at a certain point thinking, I don't know that I want this. I don't know that I want to be owned by people and to be told by a record company what to do and who I am and what I should and shouldn't say. And, and, you know, I dabbled with it by signing to a major label with Jive Records and, and I made that particular album, which they spent a fortune on. Um, but after, I, after, after Jive, I signed with Virgin Records and I was having a lot of hits in Europe. It was just at the point where uh, EMI took over Virgin and my album was shelved, never came out. So all of the success I was having in Europe didn't transfer to England so it was like you know that that first album that was banned this this then was a follow-up for that you know I didn't exist uh, but it was it became quite an interesting thing that I could have anonymity at home and go and have my ego stroked abroad and that became quite a good way of, of being and after Virgin I, I just sort of thought I'll go with an independent, see how that is. And I was with a lovely independent label for years. But then I thought I, I'd like to be able to, to do really what I want to do, to write what I want to write and not have to be anything other than what I am. And so I set up my own label and I did that in the year 2000. And it was a fan, somebody who'd been a fan became a friend. And he said, I want to see you looking after yourself and having more freedom. And he lent me the money that allowed me to set up my label, which I paid back with over a few years. And I haven't looked back really. Okay, okay I sell fewer records because I don't have the marketing team that you have with a label, but I have turned into a decent songwriter. And I have, at the age of 61, I've still got, obviously, you know, who knows what will happen now because of the coronavirus. But up until that point, I could put my head, hand on my heart and say, I'm successful in as much as I love doing what I'm doing and I make a living at it. And I stand by what I, I sing about what I believe. I write about what's going on in the world. And it's a privileged position. And that to me is success. Yes. And because um, I did an interview with Hazel O'Connor recently. And I mean, she Lovely had woman. Yes, Lovely woman. amazing story as well. And um yeah, I mean, she had the kind of very big success to begin with. And then, you know, yeah. it's all going to be, it's like one of those kind of early science fiction films we used to see where they do that thing of going through some asteroid belt and everyone would have to shake a bit on stage to sort of, you know, on, on the set, you know. And it's a bit like that with fame, I guess. You just think, oh, my God, it's, it's, it's hold tight and uh, look like you're moving a bit, you know, because the special yeah. effects used to be quite basic in the 60s. I mean, that kind of seems a bit 
like what happens with a lot of artists. Because I mean, Hazel was saying that it was when she was in Edinburgh and she saw somebody doing some songs and then at the end of her set was selling the stuff, you know, on the side of the stage, you know, and she went, oh, right, I could do that too and take back control. And it's like, and the light bulb was like, okay, that's what I do. And I know people like Annie DeFranco and Thea Gilmore. wonderful. I think she's brilliant. And they were all people who took kind of control. And I know Thea Gilmore was an independent and she signed, I think, for Sanctuary Records and then went, that's a bad idea, I'll go, I'll go back to being an independent. And just yeah. taking back kind of... That control. The, I sung on I sung on one of her albums too in her very early days. She's a great songwriter. Yes. Mm. Well, well, she did one of my favourite all-time kind of, I suppose it was like winter Christmas albums, which was just stunning. Um, yeah, so she, they're amazing performers. So with, um, yeah, so as, as you were sort of... Before you set up your record label, how did you deal with this kind of the nineties period? Because again, you'd had that kind of kind of explosion in the sort of eighties, and then 80s, yeah, and then well, in of... the nineties, well, in the nineties, uh, that was when I was with Virgin, and so I, I was having the success abroad. So I had quite a lot of number one hits in Europe, and that sort of kept me going, even though you know I wasn't. I wasn't doing anything in England. I wasn't concentrating on it at all. I felt like it had closed its doors to me through me and Mrs. Jones. And then with the album being shelved with Virgin. So I, I was going backwards and forwards. I wasn't, I wasn't doing my bit for climate change at all because I was on aeroplanes all the time. Um, but I, I was very fortunate that one particular territory just took me to their heart. Uh, and it was Italy. And in Italy, I'm very successful. I play to, you know, between between one and five thousand people of a concert, and um, I do about twenty five concerts a year. I'm able to keep a really good band together, really because of Italy. I've I've had quite a lot of hits there. I've given been given the freedom of certain cities. I've won big won big song festivals there. I've um, worked with quite a lot of Italian artists. I remember I'm, I'm very good friends with Swing Out Sister, and they're very big in, in Japan, and Japan is what has kept their career going. And Carmel, do you remember the wonderful Carmel? Yes, of course. Well, she, France became her big territory, and that's how she survived. So we all need one of these countries to sort of take us on board, and, uh, and I got one of the most beautiful Italy. Well, yes. So I'm very, very thankful. Well, I remember one of my, I suppose, I, I don't know, my musical taste is a bit all over the place. I was, very, I, was very, I was a very big John Peel fan, so I could go from Napalm Death to the Bundu Boys in, a, in sort of an easy step. And one, the other person I loved was Lemmy from Motorhead, and he said the German, oh, yeah. the German market was what he kept him going, you know, because... Well, when that's no, a good market. Germany was a big country, so if you were big in Germany, you were all right. Yes. And um, yeah, he, he said that, you know, they just bought your albums, they bought your merchandise. And if no one else wanted you, at least the, the German market. And I do remember before, I don't know, many decades ago, here in the Wurzels were very big in Australia and they had to relocate to Australia because <laughs> they were the only one. But I did, I did then sort of, you know, I didn't really understand what they were talking about. It's like, I don't understand it. But then I kind of decades later, you understand, you know, what you just said, then makes me realise what you mean because I think there's a few people I've interviewed who are big in, I don't know, it might be Thailand, but the problem is they can have phenomenal crowds and everyone knows their song, 
songs, but they'll only sell two albums because everything is so counterfeited. So they'll they kind of go right. there and they'll get yeah. paid and they get treated like gods. But it's like yeah. <laughs> it's not. It... Well, I mean, I've, I've had three number ones in Greece, but I've never received a penny. <laughs> <laughs> so you just take it with, you know, that's just how it goes. Yes, but that's very that it... fair, but it's. Well, it's, you know, it's it's great to sort of have an audience, and I would imagine, yeah. It's great an audience, yeah. And I know with a lot of indie bands, they sign to a label called Vinyl Japan, who seem to sort of say, just come to Japan and, you know, we'll give you a nice time and, and you'll see the country. So um, that. So just briefly, because I was very obsessed with Red Wedge, how did you just kind of find that ex- kind of experience of being in that kind of political, not group, but, you know, in in that kind of world for that few years? those few years um well i got involved because of jimmy and richard because this was right at the point we just we just finished the album so we hadn't yet launched um released uh the you know we haven't we hadn't released our album that came that came out months and months later um through artists against apartheid you know through my particular boyfriend then dali i he also came to a lot of these meetings and um, we just started to realise, yeah, we wanted to be involved. You know, Jimmy had been very political, and so had I in our earlier, you know, right from being 17, and I would imagine it was the same for Jimmy. Yes. And so it just seemed natural, and that's really what, what launched us, is that, you know, was it was we were such a big success on the on the tour. You know, we, we, were, we were playing to these backing tracks, which with Richard playing real piano to the backing tracks and Jimmy and I singing and uh, so it was you know you had Paul who was playing with the band Paul Weller and Junior with the band yes and and we we were there with this um this these uh, pre-recorded tapes you know it was uh, quite primitive what we were doing but it was a fantastic it was fantastic to be part of of such a group and to feel that you were doing your bit to try and get young people interested in, in, in the future of, of, of the country and to get them to want to vote and to partake. Yes. Uh, and we, we, we did all believe that we could make a difference. We had um, Ken Livingston came on tour with us. Of course, and, yes. uh, You know, we, it was very interesting listening to Billy and and to Paul, who were very politicised, and Junior, you know, Junior was, and, and the wonderful Rhoda Dacker from the special, yes. uh, Body Snatchers, she was a fantastic voice uh, on that on that tour, she was very important as part of that tour, and um, and then I went after the, the main music tour, uh, they then set up the comedy tour, and then they set up the women's tour, and I was very involved in setting up Red Wedge Woman's tour, and I managed to get Sandy Shaw involved, and gosh, Hope Augustus, and quite a few other wonderful singers. Yes. Um, but it was it was a very I'm, I'm very glad I was part of that. Yeah. It, it no, felt it, it, right at the time. No, it's the, I mean those schemes and and events were just incredible. I just you know it's like when you unpick it, you know the eighties. It's quite a fascinating decade, and um, people still sort of yeah look at that period. Then coming coming to the current day, because you did one of my favourite songs of all time, which is the John. Ma- you did a John Martin album, didn't you? Basically, yeah, just recently, yes. And covered Solid Air, which was like 
It's, yeah. I must admit, Solid Air, I'm kind of one of those people who listen to music in a seasonal way. So John Martin, Nick Drake and Journey Mitchell's Blue all come out around October, November time. I realise yeah, winter. Yeah, then your winter blues. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so John Martin, was that somebody that you'd had on your radar for a long time? Well, when I did, interesting enough, when I did that Thea Gilmore album, um, John Martin was in uh, the next room, the same studio. And I remember bumping into him. He was absolutely blotto, so he wouldn't remember it. But um, I'd been a big fan since since that album, Solid Air. You know, I mean, I, I I tuned into him far far earlier on the old Ray Whistlepest. Yes. But 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 and you know and loved. I I thought it fancied him. You know, he was a very very good looking young man, ten years older than me, with this beautiful voice. Um, but Solid Air was the one that really clinched it. Yes. It was an amazing album. And, and and his music really did become the backdrop to my life. And and then when he died, he died age 60, and I found myself turning 60 last year. And I thought, because I, 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 I turned into the writer of, of the human story. I write. I'm, I'm what you'd call a human rights songwriter. I write. I wrote the song for the... For Leila Hussein's FGM campaign, I write about child soldiers, I write about honour killings, I write about the corruption of government, um, I write about homophobia. And so I needed, when, when you write those stories, those real stories, it, you absorb them. And I felt, I felt very heavy from pain and I, I wanted a break. And so I said to my guitarist, the wonderful Tony Reming, I'd like to do an album of someone else's work so that I am freed up from writing this human story for a while. I need a break. And um, and I'm thinking, well, actually, I've got a baritone voice. So is John. I've been singing John's I Don't Want to Know About Evil for, for 20 years. Actually, 20. I, I recorded it in 1997 on my um, my Fallen Angel album. So I've been singing it as an encore all of these years. Maybe he died when he was 60. I'm now 60. Maybe I should pay, pay um, homage to John. And uh, so with Tony, I had to involve Tony because he's, you know, John was a world-class guitarist as well as a singer-songwriter. And so I, I'm not. <laughs> so I involved Tony. And between us, we, we chose 11 songs to cover. And um, we we got into the in the studio with the band, and we recorded them all live. And uh, you know we'd worked out the arrangement literally as basic as singing it into the mobile phone. Nothing nothing more adventurous than that. And it was an album that was done with a lot of love and um, a lot of respect and. From that, we realised we wanted to take it a little bit further than just having made the album. Maybe this could be a show. So I, I, I'd never applied for a grant before, but I applied for an Arts Council grant. And I got my dear friend, Mark Thomas, the wonderful political comedian and uh, political activist involved. And he, he was a fan of John Martin's and he was a long-term friend of mine. And so I asked him if he'd direct it. And so I managed to get the Arts Council grant. And we went, we went around the country with my brother, Rod, who's a filmmaker. And we filmed interviews uh, with 
with Danny Thompson, with Linda, Linda Thompson, with Eddie Reader, with uh, John's best friend, John's sister. And, and so that that became part of the show. So that even if you were a huge John Martin fan, you'd come away from the show knowing, knowing a little something you didn't know before. And uh, we took this show to the Edinburgh Festival last August, and we won an Edinburgh Festival Award. And it was, it was a wonderful year of exploring, of exploring John's work we, and meeting his family. His sister is, is a beautiful woman. And um, I got to duet. Uh, I used to be in a band called Fufu and Light Soup in the very early 80s with Eddie Reader. And then I was in the trio of Enormous Love with Ian Shaw, Eddie, and Jules Holland years ago. And so because she'd worked with John, I asked her if she'd duet. And so we went up to Glasgow and we did a duet of May You Never for the album, which is on the vinyl that we've just released. Uh, the, we've released a double vinyl album of, of the Sweet Little Mystery album. But it was... Um, it was the highlight of the year was going to the John Martin Gathering, where people from all over the world come and pay their homage and tell their stories and send their love, uh, you know, uh, all, all celebrating John up in North Yorkshire. And we got to perform Solid Air with Danny Thompson, and that was the highlight. Wow, that is amazing. And to, and to get that vocal, because I know... To be honest, my partner really hates when I play that song because she says, oh, my God, that vocal. But, but I love that vocal myself. Um, does, it take a, does it take quite a bit of preparation to sort of... Not at all. Because, you see, I've got a baritone voice. And right. that's why singing John Martin's songs was, was such a, uh, a refreshing thing to do. I didn't have to change a key at all. And I found as soon as Tony started playing the chords, I was able to... I, I just in, immediately sung, you know in that way yes i have i have that the same bass bass tone as 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 john in a way but um and do you feel because i I did a interview with francis recently who's the brother of eddie reader um oh yes and she and he was sort of you know talking about his um career and life but he did sort of mention the sort of how savage the music world and press had been to his sister over the years have you sort of I mean obviously you've made you know you've got friends who you know have had that experience have you sort of helped each other kind of cope with those kind of what it was like when you were sort of at the you know sharp end of those kind of reviews and press and unpleasantries that, unpleasantries that... well I think you don't you don't really because I mean a lot most of if she wasn't living in London, she was living in Glasgow. So we were never really able to see each other too much. But, you know, in in those early days when we did know each other, we weren't we weren't famous. And so we were just in there doing any kind of music that we possibly could. But um, I think you just you have to work it out for yourselves, don't you? You know, that, yes, the press can be very cruel, um, but it goes with the territory and You've got to, if, if you really want to be that musician all the way through, you have to, you know, you have a lot of disappointments, you have a lot of doors closed, and you have to sharpen your nails and dig your nails into the cracks in the wall, and you climb back up, and you go, you dust yourself down and say, okay, I'm back, 
and this is who I am now, and um, you have to be tough. So I, th I think you work it out for yourself. And, and a lot of my friends haven't been able to work it out and have, have quit along the way. A lot of very talented people. Yes. You know, it's not always the talent that, that stays. It's, 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 it's whether you've been able to find that strength, that self-belief to, to keep recreating. And because I'd had to do that from a very early age with a dad going to prison, I'd had to, I'd had to, I'd had, I'd had to save myself many times before I ever became famous. Well, I was thinking that probably did because there was, you know, there's obviously a lot of people who I, who I loved in the 80s, you know, that you think, oh, it's sometimes a bit difficult playing their records now because without dwelling on it, they're a bit odd. And, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, you think, oh, you know, and you kind of have to be kind of empathetic and think, well, you know, obviously something's happened and you haven't quite turned, turned out how I'd hoped. That's my yeah. expectation. But, you know, I love the music, you know, and, you know. Yeah, um, and, and, I, I mean, it's like... <laughs> You know, we if if we judged the wonderful art through the centuries by the kind of person the the person that created it, you could you could you know find yourself giving up on some of the most wonderful pieces of art in the world. You know, you have to just take yes, yeah. You know, I, I obviously I got to know a lot about John Martin by doing this project. Not all of it was good. Um, but it didn't stop me. I didn't let it stop me celebrating the genius that he was as a songwriter and a singer. Yeah. And and uh, I didn't want to judge it. I didn't want to judge his life. I just wanted to show a little bit of it. But mainly, I was trying to uh, celebrate him as as the singer songwriter. You know, there were so many people that we could bitch about here who whose personalities are incredibly dodgy but you've got to remove that and and just look at the art uh, that they created uh, you know yeah just well, because just because uh, morrissey is an absolute tosser now <laughs> doesn't mean that that's that the songs that he wrote early on made a huge impact on people you know this is true. I know. And, and I'm, I remember that, you know, we, I don't know if you can remember, but you were watching interviews with bands in the, I don't know, 70s and 80s. And people would often say, and obviously these are blokes going, yeah, it was, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. And then a, a few years ago, I thought, God, you never hear that phrase now. And, and you realise there was things that happened there which couldn't happen now. And you kind of need to just shut, I suppose, you know, shut the door and say, right, you know, you, like you just said, you that was what the gig was. And, it, yeah. you know, you can't. You know, there's no point sort of going and getting upset about it. I mean, hopefully not too many people were damaged, but you know, who knows? But yeah. it's it's like yeah. that was, you know, that was what it was like. And a lot of the songs that yeah. I sometimes listen to, you think, oh, I kind of like it. But some of those lyrics, mm, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know. Well, I was, I was for 25 years married to one of the Pogues. And uh, you can imagine some of the stories I could tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know with John Martin, there was Harry Nilsson and all these guys who who made the most amazing music and had the most soulful songs and voices, yeah. and and you kind of then you know you read a bit about them, and back They're then hell, they were hellraisers. They were very hellraisers, but you yeah. know it, we I didn't think much about it then, but now you look back and go, oh yes. Anyway, it's you know like you but said, but it doesn't it doesn't stop the music being brilliant. No. And to be honest, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily want to know these people, 
but it doesn't stop, you know. I mean, we all, Van Van Morrison is, can't, can't, you know, I've, I've had so many friends who've worked with him over the years. He is not an easy man. He's not good with people, but it hasn't stopped him. His records being amazing yes. and moving. And, you know, he, you know, Madden George must be one of the most amazing songs of all time. I know, he channeled it. I know. So I just did an interview with somebody who, who tried to work with Lee Scratch Perry, but she walked away after an afternoon because... Because they wanted a flutist and then flautist, flutist. And then he made her sort of put it on the ground and say, you mustn't touch it, it's the work of the devil. And she was going, well, that's why I'm here. And you know, he was saying, oh, you've got to sing. And she's like, I've never sung in my life. And then thought, I can't go on tour with this guy. I've got, I'm just going to walk away now. <laughs> 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 yes, she said, yes. Yes, anyway, that was interesting. So look, just lastly, what would you say to her, you know, like if you could have done just like, to your 18-year-old self when you were starting out on this interesting world of, of creativity, creativity and music and art? Yeah. What would I say? Yes. Well, I think I'd, I'd, I'd say what I, I think I said to myself back then, enjoy the journey. Yes. You know, each, each, each day is the jewel. It's not, it's not at the end. It's not the fame at the end of the of the journey it's it's each and every day that's that is part of it you know just just be in the moment be in the moment and remember it yes and with the, and with this kind of current time and obviously we all wish for having some time time to do things and then it's like oh yes now we have it are you sort of then planning what you're hoping to be doing next year as we get through well this? i was doing i'm I was booked to do quite a lot of concerts with Jimmy um, this summer and they've all been pushed to next year. But Italy is uh, is out of lockdown and Italy is where, as you know, my I was telling you, my career is, is very established. And I was about to do a, a project which was, um, well, I was about to go on tour the day of the lockdown for about four months. And... Uh, what I would have been launching earlier this month uh, was um, a project. It's a theatre project, and it, it's 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 about uh, Mark Chapman, who murdered John Lennon, and so as an actor, and there's a fantastic string quartet, and I was to be the person singing singing the Beatles songs within this really unusual versions of the Beatles songs as part of this show, and. Um, they are they've changed the date and they're launching it in early july and so there's a lot of pressure on me to go out there to do these concerts so um that may be where i am in july is singing beatles songs as part of this mark chapman theater show uh but most of the concerts that i had booked in earlier this year have been either put in for September, October, November, December, or or next year, or the same time next year. And who knows? We don't know if we're about to have a spike and we'll all be back back, back in lockdown, or we, we've just no idea what next week will hold. Um, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hoping we'll all stay safe and that we don't go back to the madness that it was and that we've all learned from, from this and that we've learned that the most important thing is community and and the planet has had a much deserved break 
and we need to take that on board and and change the way that we do things um and that means that i you know as, as someone who very much supports extinction rebellion um that means that i have to think about how do i get to my concerts that are abroad and not go on an airplane how do i travel in a different way and more and more musicians need to be thinking this way we need to change the way we do things yes just oh yeah just when you were just talking about that did you ever do much touring in america not really i mean i i toured i toured with the communards and then uh, I did a on when I set my set up my own label. I did two albums with the the wonderful Mark Rebo, who is Tom Waits' main sideman. So I did two albums, just voice and guitar. And so I toured with Mark in the states and in Canada. And then I was going to sign to Blue Note, Blue Note Records, but um, twice I nearly signed to Blue Note. The first time they'd spent all of their money on Nora Jones. And so there was nothing left to spend on the English singer-songwriter, which which had been they'd been talking with me for a long time, and then the second time round, I can't remember what happened, but it didn't quite happen with my Love and Pain album. And now you know Bruce Lundberg is dead, and he was the person that was very much behind me. Uh, but I haven't been to America. My desire is not on the top of the list of places I'd want to visit at the moment. No, I don't. I don't really <laughs> fancy uh, no. uh, anywhere that's got anything to do with Donald Trump. No, and, uh, this is um, it's a bit. It's, of a... it's it's a it's a crazy place at the moment. My ex-husband is living there, just outside of San Francisco. He remarried, and uh, you know he's he's finding it tough being being there. Yes. Yeah, no, it's uh, it must be very weird. It's um, you can't believe it. Yeah, no, I just ask that because a lot of people who I've interviewed with bands, they often have a five year narrative. They get together, they have that twelve months. John Peel does a session. You have a session, then the album, then the second album's often tricky. The third one's really tricky. But if mostly when people say, and then we did America and we came home, we split up. You know, because it's like somehow and for some reason America seems to destroy bands really. <laughs> so I just wondered how if you'd had a. No. Sim- that hadn't happened with me. Oh, that yeah, because you're you were probably dynamically was a little bit different with um, what you were doing, but yeah, yeah. all the other bands. I was, I suppose, at that point, I wasn't really a band. I was just this band leader. Yeah, and that's although quite... I've, I've always hated that term. You know, I, I when I create a band, it, I, I see myself as being just one member of that band. You know, I I write music with my musicians. We all create the sound, and I I. I suppose I recreate my my six brothers, but in music, we travel every. I spend more time with them than I usually do with my husband, so I have to love them as human beings, and I have to love what happens in their brain, and I do. And you know, it's it's sort of I tour with with a wonderful group of people that I would call my very very dear friends. Yes, well, it's interesting because I've done quite a lot of interviews for some. Well, that's because I really loved him. David Bowie, musicians. And there was a woman who um, who sung on one of his songs and did a Glastonbury date with him, Holly Palmer. And she was saying that she suddenly got a phone call because she knew the guitarist at the time um, who said, could you just come? And so, you know, they, they were just kind of working on some vocal. And it was quite interesting. She was describing working with 
David Bowie and Tony Visconti and the guitarist guy. Um, yeah, you know, what they were looking for and trying to get it right. And again, you know, he was he was using everybody in the room to create to help create this kind of moment, which was yeah. on the track called Thursday's Child. And um, yeah, so she was singing on that. So, um, yeah. It's well, my friend, my, uh, uh, someone that I, I've known since the Happy End days, the wonderful Gail Ann Dorsey became Bowie's bass player. Oh, yes. And she... I mean, she was already a wonderful singer-songwriter, but had never really had the breakthrough. And uh, she, she just was, she was so perfect within David's band. And she told me that David, because he was so sure of who he was and his success, he didn't have to prove anything. And so he was, uh, he was able to celebrate her. And he gave her a very central position. And she shone. And it, it was wonderful to see. You could... There was enormous respect and love within that that later band. Yes. She, you know, for the last 20 years of his career. That was a... She said he was a very generous spirit. Yes. Well, she got to do the duet of Under Pressure, didn't she? So, yeah, uh, yeah. That was quite special. Yeah, I, you know, it was kind of interesting, but I could see that he was really... And his last album, Black Star, you know, he sort of literally gets the jazz band from um, New York to sort of be his band, really, and... Yeah. You know, it, yeah, it's interesting. But like you said, you're not really like that Robert De Niro character in, is it New York, New York, where he's the band leader with Liza Minnelli or somebody? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so 80s. Look, well, look, Sarah Jane, thank you ever so much for this. And when I it's do it, pleasure. I'll send you a link and then you could always put it on your whatever page. Absolutely. But thank Absolutely. you again. And it's been amazing. It's a pleasure. Okay. It's been lovely. Thank you very much. Okay, then. Thanks a lot there. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Well done, if you're still with me. But um, yes, quality chat. That was me in conversation with Sarah Jane Morris-Singer. And as I said, she's got a very good, um, yes, website and probably on various various social media platforms as well. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. You can contact me, if you so wish, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at... C86 show, I'm there. Also, I've been archiving all these interviews, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and then Podbean. There you go. It's that simple. Anyway, again, we have to just say goodbye. But stay safe. Have a great week.